librarian at the Killaloo Public Library, and I would like to welcome you all here tonight, those of you here in person in lovely downtown Killaloo in our Lions Hall, and those of you out there on the World Wide Web, as you're about to listen to another episode of what is fast becoming our favorite podcast, The Opiongo Line, here in the Bonshire River Valley. Tonight we're here to help kick off our annual Irish Gathering, one of our most cherished cultural events aimed at celebrating our Irish roots alongside our German, Polish, Scottish, and other founding cultures here in Killaloo. And what better way to celebrate than to invite back the Opiongo Readers Theatre. For those of you who were with us at last year's Irish Gathering, you know you're in for an entertaining mix of curious local history and sometimes off-the-wall shenanigans. With us tonight, we have some of the group's most talented vocal performers. Leslie Betts, Jeff Bowman, Jane Corbett, Linda Schulist, Lynn Stewart, and Mark Wormke. And so, without further ado, it's on with the show. This year, we thought we'd follow the lead of some other communities up and down the upper Ottawa Valley and try our hand at celebrating the 125th anniversary of the coming of the railway, not only to Killaloo, but to those 29 other communities between Ottawa and Perry Sound, who were united by a rail line built through here in 1894. It was called the OA and PS, or the Ottawa, Arnprior, and Perry Sound Railroad. And though it no longer exists, it was part and parcel of how Killaloo became, well, Killaloo. But our OA and PS history is not like everybody else's up or down the old OA and PS line. It's uniquely our own. It's probably best to just hear it firsthand. So we've put together a curious mix of historical notes drawn from local newspapers back between 1875 and 1899, which of course means that what we're about to tell you is partly truth and partly fiction. And part of your job will be to figure out which is which. 3rd of May, 1875, the Eganville Enterprise. A coroner's inquest was held on the body of Philip Malone at Rudinell on Sunday last. The deceased is said to have been sitting on a bench in a hotel in Brudenell, when suddenly he fell forward, his forehead striking the floor, which caused a deep bruise in the skin. He was picked up and placed on a chair and in a few moments died. The jury returned a verdict that the deceased departed life by the visitation of God. <laughs> 10th of March, 1887, the Eganville Enterprise. The unpleasant intelligence arrived here on Sunday that the new hotel built by Mr. Michael Coslow of Brudenell was burned to the ground on Saturday night. The fire originated from a stovepipe. Considerable of the contents were saved, but it is not known whether there was any insurance on the hotel. The loss, nevertheless, will be heavy. In another matter, while Mr. Frank Foy, who is jobbing on Aylan Lake, was away attending the funeral of the late James Cherry, the young man who fatally shot himself a couple of weeks ago, Mr. Foy's shanty caught fire, and before any assistance could arrive, everything was consumed, including nearly $200 cash. 
While Ed Power was working at this fire, he caught cold and has since died from the effects. The loss will be heavy. of November 1892, the Eganville Enterprise. There are several cases of diphtheria about Killaloo, South Algona, Sebastopol, and Mount St. Patrick. The disease was brought into this section by shantymen coming from the cities and young men from the country around going into the shanties caught it, and their going home to be nursed carried it to their homes. Mrs. J. Hazelton of Killaloo has lost by diphtheria her eldest daughter, Ellen, aged 13 years, and her youngest child, Joshua, aged six years. Three of the other children are recovering. 30th of January, 1894, the Ottawa Daily Citizen. Ottawa. Mr. Bruce, civil engineer on the OA and PS Railway, is in town, staying at the Grand Union. He says contractor Heath has almost 100 men employed in filling in swamps and working on rock cuts on his section between Golden Lake and Killaloo, some 20 miles west of Eganville. Mr. M.J. O'Brien, contractor, is expected to commence shortly on his section, which is 12 miles west of Killaloo. 19th of April, 1894, the Ottawa Journal. There are more than 400 men at work all the way from Barry's Bay to Hagerty Pass. It is not an unusual thing to see women at work at the upper part of the construction. The railway is considered a boon to the sparsely settled communities. 26th of June, 1894, the Ottawa Journal. The steel of the OA and PS is now laid to Killaloo, about 15 miles beyond Eganville and the work of construction well advanced over that distance. The OA and PS Railway has been surveyed by the government inspector for 10 miles west of Eganville to enable the company to draw the bonus for that distance. 21st of July, 1894, the Ottawa Daily Citizen, an army of men at work. Mr. George A. Mountain, chief engineer of the Canadian Atlantic Railway and the new Ottawa Arnprior and Perry Sound Railway, now under construction, arrived home yesterday from Killaloo to where the rails are laid at present. Yesterday, trains crossed the new bridge at Brennan's Creek at that place for the first time. Another two and a half miles will bring the work of construction to the foot of the famous Hagerty Pass. A regular army of men is engaged on the work. Mr. Farquhar having 1,000 men alone on his contract. On some of the heavy cuts, work has commenced night and day. The railway is making matters boom at Killaloo, as is evident by the large number of new houses now in course of construction. 21st of July, 1894, the Ottawa Journal. Over 2,000 men at work. Yesterday, Chief Engineer George A. Mountain and some of his assistants came down from the scene of active operations between Eganville and Killaloo and report all going on lively. Mr. C. D. Chitty, who is hiring men and sending them forward as they can be grouped together, was also a passenger down by the afternoon train, having been up to the works with a lot of English navvies he had secured in Montreal through the emigrant agent there, and they are said to be a desirable lot of men. 
Thursday was payday in Killaloo, the depot from which the shekels were issued, and as can readily be imagined, there was a high old time. It so happens that musical Killaloo is not a city nor a town where architectural beauty is considered, but is composed of a few shanties of the original backwoods type, at nearly all of which fire water is retailed. (laughs) An extra effort is being made by the different licenses, for the county of Renfrew collects the revenue to pass around the fluid freely on the day the men received their pay. And, accordingly, yesterday there was fun and frolic with a knockdown not infrequently a la Dunnybrook in honor of the occasion. There is more or less grog drinking on all public works, and where the gangs are composed of Swedes, Finlanders, Poles, Italians, Frenchmen, and Irishmen, added to which the last gangs of the Cockney type, it can readily be imagined that occasionally there are rough times. <laughs> the trouble in the management of such an agglomeration, even motley as it is, would be much minimized were there no selling of liquor. But revenue is sought after, and as the licensees appear before the commissioners, armed with the necessary petitions and forms, the licenses are granted directly without regard to the interests of the men or the employer. 1st of August, 1894, the Eganville Enterprise. There are rumors of several diphtheria outbreaks in the area. And no wonder, said the local doctor, some very small houses are accommodating 12 to 18 men. When one gets up, another tumbles into his warm bed. Some men have died of diphtheria. 10th of August, 1894, the Renfrew Mercury. Fatal dynamite explosion. The Ottawa Evening Journal of Friday last published the following account of the dynamite explosion mentioned in last week's Mercury. It will be seen that it varies from the report received here as to the number of men killed and injured. The particulars of the dynamite explosion of the OA and PS Railway construction at Barry's Bay, which resulted in the loss of three lives, as mentioned in yesterday's journal, are now at hand. Mr. G.A. Mountain, chief engineer of the OA and PS Railway, returned to Ottawa last evening from a trip to the vicinity of Barry's Bay, where the accident occurred. In conversation with a journal reporter last evening, he stated that the three men who met their death were loading a hole with dynamite, had placed three cartridges in position, and were about to place a fourth when the explosion occurred. From what cause will never be explained. The three men were blown many feet high in the air, and one of them, named George Marston from Carlow, was killed outright. Another, named William Keller of Palmer Rapids, lived for an hour, and the other, an unknown Englishman, died four hours afterwards. The bodies were horribly mangled. During the night, coffins were made in which the remains were placed. Keller's remains were taken to his home in Palmer Rapids. The other remains were buried in the vicinity. The accident occurred in a part of a rock cut at the western outlet of the Hagerty Pass. Between 15 and 20 men were working within a few yards of where the explosion occurred. George Marston of Carlow was the only son of Mr. Marston, 
who many years since kept the Basin Depot House at Barnett and McKay's Depot at the Basin. Mr. Marston subsequently kept other stopping places between Renfrew and the Basin and kept a store in Lower Centertown, Ottawa. George was then a growing boy of about a dozen years of age and gave promise of turning out a young man of good character and disposition. His father, after leaving Renfrew, took charge of Mr. McGuire's lumbering farm near Mattawa and still resides there. Mr. and Mrs. Marston came down by the CPR from Mattawa and took the OA and PS train to attend the funeral of their unfortunate and lamented son. 10th of August, 1894, the Brockville Recorder. A row occurred on the OA and PS at Killaloo on Saturday, says the Pembroke Standard, that will be remembered for some time to come by at least one party. Archie Stewart, a navvy working on the line, went into Mr. Grand's store and started to tear things up generally. He fired around crockery and had broken several articles when Grant ventured to protest. A fight ensued and Stewart bit Grant's ear clean off. The latter carries it around to show friends and vows that when he meets Stuart, the latter will have something to remember the meeting by. 14th August, 1894, the Montreal Gazette. Work is progressing steadily on the Ottawa Armprior and Perry Sound Railway, and the road is being pushed ahead. The new section from Golden Lake to Killaloo will most likely be open for freight about the end of this week. Many carloads of steel rails for the construction of the road passed through Ottawa last week. Most of the smaller station yards along the line have a number of carloads on hand and ready for shipment to the far end of the road as soon as the present supply runs out. 18th of August, 1894, the Ottawa Daily Citizen. Government engineer Rideout examines the Killaloo section of the OA and PS Railway. The government inspection of the 10-mile section from Golden Lake to three miles west of Killaloo on the OA and PS Railway took place yesterday. A special car left the Canadian Atlantic Railway Depot in Ottawa at 9 a.m. and arrived back here in Ottawa at 10 o'clock last night. On board were Mr. Rideout, Dominion Government Inspector, Mr. McCullum, Provincial Inspector, Mr. J.R. Booth, President of the OA and PS Railway, Mr. E.J. Chamberlain, General Manager, Mr. Donaldson, Superintendent, Mr. Mountain, Civil Engineer, Mr. Mills, Member of Parliament for Annapolis, Nova Scotia, and Mr. Bedford. The portion of the line inspected runs through a country of almost unbroken forest. It is comparatively level, but in some places there are heavy rock cuts. The only water on the section is a creek in Killaloo, which is spanned by a 60-foot steel bridge. 23rd of August, 1894, the Ottawa Journal. The OA and PS railway station at Killaloo is about completed. The rails of the OA and PS are now laid to a distance of three miles west of Killaloo. 31st of August, 1894, the Renfrew Journal. The stone dropped into his mouth. 
an Italian working on the OA and PS railway near Killaloo, met with a peculiar accident one day lately. He was standing waiting for a blast to go off, and when the dynamite exploded, the son of sunny Italy looked up to see that no stones were falling upon him. He was so blinded by the sun's rays that he did not see a stone till it fell into his mouth and knocked out some of his teeth. The stone was about the size of a hen's egg. 9th October, 1894, the Bryson Equity, a sportsman paradise. A few good hunters with proper appliances for taking bears would make much money all along the route of the OA and PS Railway, west of Eganville. Wolves and deer abound in the Opiongo Mountains. Vast droves and herds have been driven from their usual haunts by the great amount of dynamite used in the construction of the line. It would appear as if we were going to have all the wild animals down here from Algonquin Park. Wolves can now be heard at night to the south of Killaloo, and certainly much deer must be there. Deer are also reported very plentiful on Bark Lake and Round Lake, and even some moose have been seen on the mountains north of Golden Lake. The latter must have wandered all the way from Mattawa or Timiskaming country. 23rd of August, 1895, the Ottawa Daily Citizen. Saturday, August 31st, promises to be a red-letter day for Brudenell, for on that day the first meet of the new Brudenell racetrack will be held. The track was built during the past summer under the direction of Mr. James Cosolo. It is a half-mile one and second to none in Canada. 21st November, 1895, the Montreal Gazette. The Gauthier case. This time... Rheumatism is cured by Dr. Dodd's kidney pills. Up the Apiongo, a Frenchman uses the great kidney treatment and is cured of a kidney disease. Special to the Gazette. Brudenell, November 29th. Investigation, having proved the case of Eli Gauthier of sufficient public interest, your correspondent found this gentleman at the leading hotel here. Explaining the object of his call induced him to talk of his cure. Yes, sir, I am Monsieur Gautier. This in a decided French accent. I was very souffert, very much of rheumatic, very long time in bed. That was over two years ago. I could not walk. No, I could not walk one acre. I would drop so weak. Oh, mon Dieu, awake all night. Monsieur Costello sell me the Dodd kidney pill and tell me they cure everything. <laughs> I say to Miss, Mr. Costello, excuse me, I don't want to be cured of everything. <laughs> I only want to be cured of rheumatic. <laughs> I am sick of that everything. <laughs> At the same time, I was trouble along with dyspepsy. That is also gone with rheumatic. <laughs> I am known by every man from those corners to Killaloo, ten mile. Every lady tell to me some cure, sure, sure, to try. But it was all no bon. The only cure do me good is Dodd kidney pill. I got appetite, so the hotel stare at the plate like mad. 
I have no more pain. I can walk straight. I am cured. <laughs> 2nd of September, 1896, the Ottawa Journal. Killed by train, a laborer meets his death on the Perry Sound near Killaloo. A laborer named La Montaigne was struck and killed by an Ottawa and Perry Sound train last evening. The accident occurred near Killaloo. It was the westbound express leaving Ottawa at 5.20 which struck the man. The accident occurred about dark and it is supposed that the man was asleep on the tracks. He was not known by the train hands but the remains were identified by persons living in the vicinity. La Montaigne is supposed to belong to Quebec. 21st December, 1896, the Ottawa Journal. The ratepayers of Brudenell, Hagerty, and South Algona are taking steps to have a branch line of the OA and PS built between the villages of Brudenell and Killaloo. They will raise $300 by private subscription and ask the Ontario government to grant a sum equal to three times that amount. 21st of July, 1897, the Ottawa Journal. Many young men going west in search of employment. Golden Lake. The farmers are busy saving their hay, which on the whole is rather a light crop. The warm weather and frequent showers we have had of late has done much to improve the corn and roots. Mr. John Thomas, who went to Killaloo on Saturday to spend Sunday with his brother, was taken suddenly ill while there and returned home Monday morning very little better. Quite a number from here took in the cheap pilgrimage to St. Anne's, Quebec this week. Mr. and Mrs. T.J. Perrin, who have been visiting friends here in the vicinity for some days, returned to Rock Lake on Saturday. Miss Edith Morrison of Wakefield, Quebec, has been a guest of Miss Lottie Campbell at this station for several weeks. Mr. Ed Bennett, Indian agent, left for Ottawa on Saturday on business in connection with his department. Big Joe, on the reserve, is suffering with a very sore finger and is completely laid up. He now thinks he will have the finger amputated. Scarcely a week passes but more or less of our young men leave for Whitney and other points west looking for more lucrative employment than they can obtain around home. 14th of January, 1899, the Ottawa Citizen. The Eganville and Killaloo hockey teams had a match at Killaloo last Monday night. The score was 9-5 to five in favour of Eganville, but our Childerhouse, one of the hockey players, had four toes frozen while playing. <laughs> 25th of September, 1899, the Ottawa Citizen, Eganville. A very pleasant event occurred yesterday at St. James Church when Miss Kate Foran was united in marriage with Mr. Thomas Dunnigan of Killaloo. Miss Millie Foran, sister of the bride, was bridesmaid, while Mr. Michael Dunnigan of Barry's Bay assisted the groom. Reverend P.S. Dowdle officiated. After the ceremony, the happy couple, accompanied by a large number of friends, partook of a choice repast at the house of the bride's mother. Mr. and Mrs. Dunnigan left by the 8 o'clock OA and P.S. train for Ottawa and Montreal. They will return in a week's time and take up residence in Killaloo.
Well, if you can't trust the newspapers to tell you the truth, how about the government? Here's how the Ontario government thought of us in a report they published in 1878, dealing in what they affectionately described as underdeveloped land. Hegarty Township is bounded on the north by the Township of Richards, on the east by the Townships of Fraser, North Algona, and South Algona, and on the south by the Township of Brudenell, and on the west by the Township of Sherwood. It was surveyed in 1862 by the Provincial Land Surveyor, Mr. Hamilton, and contains 53,329 acres of land. The following is an extract from the surveyor's report. The soil in general is rich and fertile and produces ample returns of wheat, barley, oats, and potatoes. With the exception of the River Bonchere, which is just within the township, the chief streams are Byers and Brennan's Creeks, which, with their tributaries, may be said to drain the whole township. The first flows into Round Lake, the latter into Golden Lake. Both have their sources without the township, and both are used for floating timber to the lakes in the spring. Brennan's Creek consists of two main branches. The eastern one enters South Algona, the western from Brudenell. And after meandering through a low, marshy flat, they at length meet about four miles from Golden Lake. From the junction to within a mile and a half of the mouth of the creek is broken by a succession of violent rapids, affording admirable sites for milling purposes. Strong and well-built timber dams and slides have been erected on these rapids, I think as many as seven, at an outlay, I was informed, of $10,000. Of the four lower dams which lie within a space of half a mile, the two middle ones are in close proximity to the location of William McDonald. About ten chains below Mr. McDonald's clearing, the stream becomes navigable, and after winding its way through a low, wet flat covered in soft maple, ash, and alder bushes, it discharges itself into the southwestern extremity of Golden Lake. Byers Creek, like Brennan's, likewise consists of two main branches, both of which enter from the township of Burns. After flowing towards the center of the township, they meet in a narrow valley surrounded by ridges of considerable elevation. Immediately below the junction, there is a strong rapid, at the head of which a dam has been erected, chiefly with a view to holding back the water in order to facilitate the transport of timber to the lake in the spring. Between the rapids and the lake, a distance of three miles, the waters flow with a smooth but swift current. In the lower portion of its course, it winds through a narrow flat bounded on either side by ridges and sand plains now denuded by fire. It enters the lake from lot 17 in the 13th concession. A good winter road leads from the mouth to the settlement in and around the front of the township. There is not over half of this township yet occupied though the greater part of it is suited to settlement. The soil is generally a sandy loam and there is some excellent land through it, but the want of roads has prevented it being settled as rapidly as it otherwise would. During the last three years, the government has been extending the Algona and Hagerty Road into this township, and this has been a very great boon to the settlers and has been the means of bringing a number of new ones in. There is very little land in this township which will not eventually be settled upon, and it is by far the best township of any west of Wilberforce. If Golden Lake were lowered two feet, which it is said could easily be done by cutting through a sandbar at the outlet, some thousands of acres of excellent lands would be made available for settlement. There are two sawmills on Brennan's Creek, and a grist mill is now being built. Upon this creek, there are a great number of water powers, 
and water powers might also be got on Byers Creek. And on the Bonachere, a short distance below Round Lake, there is an excellent water power. There are as yet no villages in the township, the settlers' business being transacted either at Eganville or Brudenell. The township has this year organized into a municipality. There is one church, Roman Catholic, in the township and two schools. Improved farms can be purchased at from $3 to $8 per acre. Sounds about right, but a little, shall we say, dry, if not bureaucratic. Surely the good folks back in 1878 might not recognize themselves as that soon-to-be megatropolis called Killaloo. I know of one old-timer, Sid Bay, who took a different view of Killaloo history. He was still alive in 1961 and told a pair of young Ottawa journalists a thing or two about what he called Old Killaloo. 28th October 1961, The Ottawa Journal, by Derek Pogson. Old Killaloo, lying a couple of miles southwest of its younger relative, New Killaloo, was for more than 50 years, until 1910, the focal point for all grain grinding operations for the surrounding farm community. To this tiny community, consisting then of a mere three dozen or so persons, came many, many thousands of bushels of wheat each harvest season. The hub of Old Killaloo was the grist mill, still standing, but barely, built by John Hazelton in 1850. It was the sole industry, until two brothers named McDonnell founded Fort McDonnell, about two miles north of the Old Killaloo settlement, and set up a small lumber mill. At the turn of the century, the wheels of the old grist mill were kept turning round the clock during the harvest season. Truckin' and tradin' was the name given to those few weeks when farmers trucked in their goods on horse-drawn carts and traded off their season's produce for winter supplies and feed. It was about 1910 when the influx of western wheat made its impact on demands for the locally grown product. Milling operations dwindled to a mere trickle, farmers bringing in only enough grain to meet their own winter requirements. However, the years 1895 to 1905 were old Killaloo's heyday, when the wheat and lumber industries overlapped. The arrival of the Ottawa and Perry Sound Railroad in 1894 brought it a change in name for the fort, and high life and riotous days and nights of the old Killaloo settlement. Fort McDonnell became Killaloo Station. With this change, there came all the rowdiness of a lumber camp, for this is what it became. Almost overnight, three hotels sprouted up in old Killaloo, their bars catering to thirsty lumberjacks of many nationalities who worked in the pine forests and around the two communities. But as swiftly as the boom came to old Killaloo in those few years either side of 1900, just as quickly it disappeared with the slump of the wheat market. Today, all the family breadwinners work in nearby New Killaloo and other neighboring communities. The only remaining active industry in Old Killaloo is the village store. The oldest resident of Old Killaloo is sprightly 81-year-old Sid Bay. Mr. Bay is one of the few who can remember the rough, tough times when the railroad came in. He is the current owner of the gristmill. I'd sell it tomorrow if I could, he says. 
but he thinks Old Killaloo has retained its inhabitants because of the family atmosphere. We're more sociable than them, he says, stabbing a finger in the general direction of New Killaloo. (laughs) Showing us around the village, he paused, went about 50 yards from his home and observed, this is the furthest I've been up the street in the last six months. (laughs) Asked why, he thought for a few seconds and replied, never had any reason to go further. (laughs) Sid certainly sounds like old Killaloo, but we've got a memoir of somebody who's a little more, shall we say, circumspect, if not objective. You see, he didn't hail from either old or new Killaloo, but he certainly did know the sort of character that grew up here. And his family name, as Irish as they get, still rings with a true sense of Killaloo shenanigans. His name was Gerald Costello, or Coslow, as we like to say around here. He was born on the 8th of August, 1905, and on his 85th birthday in 1990, he talked about his life and his connection with Killaloo. I was born in this house in Haggerty Township 85 years ago today. Most of the family was born here. My father came from Ireland. The family took up land together. The township was surveyed in later years. I had 200 acres. My father died when he was young. He cut his hand and blood poisoning came in. He died in 1914. I was a small gaffer at the time, so I had to stay here. My brothers had to get out to go to work. One brother went to pick stones from daylight to dark for 50 cents a day. And that wasn't such a hard sentence. I bet you if a lot of them got that sentence today, there wouldn't be as much thefts and stealing of cars and such. (laughs) The brothers got out and they went to the lumber camps. They sent my mother money. It was just that way. There was great cooperation. Today, that's not heard of. Wouldn't be done today, but they sent home money and kept us going. Finally, they got married off, and we were getting older and bigger, and it came down to the last, and I stayed home with my mother here. We owned the land. We were paying taxes on it. We had to stay. We couldn't get out. Where the hell would we go? There was no place else any better. If we went away, we couldn't get any work. Here, we could cut our own wood and raise a horse. And then we had three cows, and we used to keep sheep. My mother would spin the wool and sell socks. It kept us. My mother was a willing, healthy woman. When my father died, she had to raise her family. I guess she knew what was ahead of her, and she put her utmost into it. In the winter time, my mother would make Mackinac pants. She had a sewing machine and sewed the thick Mackinac cloth herself. She would put your underwear inside. She made it out of sheep's wool. We would fleece it, and she would make her own wool and knit your drawers right out of sheep's wool. (laughs) She would spin the wool with the big spinning wheel. She would stand up and turn the wheel. She was good at that. She knew how to spin the yarn. And if she wanted to make a double ply, she would put it on backwards and put a twister on it. A twister, that was a thing that would part the yarn and then put the two parts together. Mother would bake homemade bread, and we had cows, and there would be butter. And we had pigs, and there would be pork. We'd kill two pigs, cut them all up, put them in a barrel, and shake salt on them. That would keep right through the winter. No fridges in those times. 
We liked that food a lot. Mother wouldn't give us everything we wanted because we'd eat too much of it. That was good food, you know, but we filled up with something. Whatever it was, we were satisfied. We had lots of potatoes and butter because we raised that. We didn't make money, but having that homegrown stuff to eat meant a lot. It was all nourishing food. We were never cold. We had lots of wood, all kinds of wood. The best wood was what we called shikos. A forest fire went through here. It was before my time. It would have been in my father's generation. It burned a lot of this land around here clean as a whistle. That fire left a ridge of burnt pine. We used to call the stumps shikos. I'd go around and cut that wood and have a girth to put over my shoulder, and I'd carry about half a cord of wood into the house. Holy God, it was the perfect wood. Just light the fire in your, in your stove, and you could see it getting red. It was wonderful. Now the shikos are all gone, and the young growth is up. There'll never be the fires that were there at that time. In those days, would sweep right across the country. Today, they have equipment to stop them. It's a good thing, too. We were a healthy family, but we used to have colds. My mother would give us brown sugar and three drops of turpentine on it. That would clean up a sore throat. Or if you got hoarse, that would open up the passway. Turpentine cleared it and healed it if it was swollen. Turpentine was cheap that time. Well, it would have to be. So you'd put so many drops of turpentine in the sugar and swallow it. By God, that would help the throat. When my father died and then the lads went out to work, my mother was left with three girls. And one girl went to Eganville. May was her name. 1918. Oh, I remember it well. The flu hit Eganville. The flu epidemic, they called it. And May got it. And God, my mother got word to go to Eganville. They said that May was very sick, but she was dead before my mother got there. That was a hard hit on us, 1918. That was an awful epidemic. You'd get sick, and holy God, in 24 hours you'd be dead. You'd get congested and just choke right up. There were no needles, nothing like that in them days. It killed half the world. When it was my turn, I went to the camps. I went to different shanties. I went for years. The first winter I went to Whitney, that's above Barry's Bay. My uncle was clerking for J.R. Booth. He got me in when I was 12 years old. We went in the fall and we stayed until the spring. I was helping the bull cook. The bull cook used to bring in wood and water and I would help him. But I wouldn't get loaded down like he would because he was a man, you know, when I was only a kid. There were 75 or 100 men, bunks, straw under for a mattress. An old stove, holy God, made out of those big barrels and would redden up. Holy God, you'd throw off your blankets at night, it'd be so hot. And the goddamn skylight was about as big as my front door. It was open all night and it took up the smoke and everything. But the bunkhouse was warm in the morning because the fire never went out. They could put a chunk in that fire. Holy God, maybe five feet long. It would be all they could do to lift it into the fire at night when they went to bed, and there'd be coals red in the morning. The fire was a bull cook's job, and I helped. We went in November, and we were there till April. 
I wasn't homesick because my brother was in there and my cousin was in there. I was glad to get out and be making money, a dollar a day. I guess I liked it in a sense, but I got pretty tired of it because the chuck wasn't so good. They used to give us an awful lot of fat meat at that time, and I didn't like <laughs> fat meat. And there was beans. I used to eat beans and margarine. You wouldn't starve on it, but you wouldn't get fat on it either. We had a mile to go up the hill to go to school. That's where I got an education. We all went as far as entrance. I never went through to write my entrance test. I know I could have passed, but I thought, what the hell's the use? I'll be on the farm anyway. What good will that be? I knew as much as I would if I'd written my entrance, but I didn't go for it because you had to go to Eganville to try. And you had to get a place to stay in Eganville. And there was board to pay. That would cost maybe $5. Well, $5 was hard to get. And I knew it would be no good to me even if I did pass. I knew as much as I did whether I wrote my entrance or not. In the early days when I quit school, there were no parties for the children. Parties were for the grown-ups. The others could go to a dance and watch them dance, but you'd never get up and dance till you were around 12 or 13 years of age. Some of them would be shy and cry and everything, be a little nervous. My brother could make a violin almost talk. He was so good at it. God, he was wonderful. My brother was a perfect player. There were about 10 violin players right around this district. They were great. They were wonderful. They could make a rattle. I've never heard the like of it since. I used to dance the chicken reel, me and my neighbor O'Grady. We took first prize at Cormac. Me and O'Grady, we used to dance together and change hands and cross the floor and all that. The prize was only five bucks, and that was divided, so it'd be two and a half bucks a piece. And we were good, too. I'm not bragging. We were really good. Because my brother Mike played the violin, and I used to practice here with Mike playing the violin. You go with the music, you know. You hear a violin, and you just go. Holy God, even yet it's in my blood. When I hear a violin just a rattling, oh, it's in you. It makes you get up. This was square dancing at that time. You'd never see round dancing. The chicken reel was played for a breakdown for a square, and it was played for a step dance. Oh, it's played often yet. God, you couldn't get better neighbors than we had. They'd been there as long as I can remember. I do anything for my neighbor, and he's just the same. If I ask him to do something, he says, sure, I'll go and help you. If you wanted to cut up a bunch of wood with the horses, then you had to get a bunch of men. You had a circular saw, and it took a lot of men to keep that saw going. You'd saw winter's wood in, a sh in the short days of the fall. Oh, more than a winter's wood. We cut it ahead and let it dry. But you had to ask your neighbor, because you needed a lot of men. And it would be the same at his place. When he did his song, he would ask you. Trade work, they called it. Trade work. Old Mr. Gotta set up a sawmill for my father right down in our yard. He cut all the lumber and did custom sawing. He would bring the sawmill and set it up where there was enough work to keep him going all winter. Different people brought him wood to saw. They all wanted to be building. It was a saw run by an engine. He had to pile the wood up. You'd pick up a bunch of wood and throw it on the table, and the sawyer would pull the saw out and cut it, and the other lad would throw it away. 
You could saw 50 cord a day, but it would take eight men. This old house is over 100 years of age, and there are boards on it four feet wide. They come off the land here. You can see them on the outside. And there are four tiers of that in this old house. There was no such a thing as planers at that time. Lumber was left rough. You put it in the house rough, but it stood up. This house is well over 100 years of age, and the boards are good yet. There are four tiers of boards in it. Houses were made a lot stronger in the early days because they had to last. The only thing is, they didn't make good foundations in that time. They put a cedar foundation. And this foundation, it's not level now. There's really kind of a difference in the floor now. But it's solid. It must be. It's been here for over 100 years. I liked working in the bush the best. I have bush here yet. And I made money on the bush. I put away some every year out of it. It's a mixed timber bush. If you're going to sell pine one year, you cut the pine and take it out. Watch the other trees. Don't break it up too much. Along with that, we would cut pulpwood. I used to cut pulpwood and draw that with horses to kill a loo. Oh, that's a man-killing job. You'd have to draw it to kill a loo and throw it off on the ground. Then when you had a boxcar, you got another man with you and you piled that into a boxcar. It would hold about 18 cords. You'd be down there before daylight to fill a car, and it would be midnight before you could get back at night. Then it would go out the next morning on the CNR. Pulp that time would run around 6 or $7 for a cord, but you had a lot of work to do for that. And when you got your returns, you wouldn't get much because you were dealing in the store. The store would give you credit as long as you had pulp to sell, but when the returns would come, the store would have the biggest part of it. But you lived. If it wasn't for the storekeeper, you'd have starved. You're okay now when you get old. They give you the pension and it keeps you. But in the old days, there wouldn't have been a nickel for that. In the old days, the old people stayed with the family. The young ones who were going to get the place would keep the old people. They would take care of them until they buried them. That's the way it went. And it was a good thing, too, because half those old people couldn't afford to bury themselves at all. The young generation today, they'd have an awful time if they were dipped in some cooling and sent back in time and had to go buy the things they had 75 years ago. What would they do? Life and time teaches you. When you look back over the world, you'd never think there could be so many changes. It's a different world. God Almighty, every country there's a war going on, and they're shooting at you and running down the streets. It's wicked. In other days, you'd never hear of such things. I guess the countries were smaller and there was no transportation, so they were all a lot quieter. Eventually, they all came together and got spread out, and now they're all different nationalities of all descriptions. Like we have the hippies here. They're a different nationality. And they use that goddamn dope. Some of them are good enough fellows, but damn, that goddamn dope. People were real obedient in the old days. Not near as much blaspheming and stuff that goes on today. There was nobody like the hippies. If they had long hair back then, it was because they had no place to get it cut. It wasn't the style. I learned about right and wrong, just the way the world was going. Just by what I could see for myself in the way things were going. 
What's going to happen? I won't say much now because I don't have much time. I'll keep my mouth shut in case they say, you keep your mouth shut, get the hell back there. You've talked long enough. By now you should be getting a pretty good grip on the sort of history and character that we folks here in Killaloo are known for, far and wide. But one thing that Killaloo has been famous for is our innate sense of direction. We've had a long and distinguished history, not only in transportation systems like railroads, but our history also has developed a pretty keen sense of jet-aged navigation. Indeed, little old Killaloo was one of the first communities in Canada to master the fine art of finding your way in the dark, if not flying your jetliner through a lot of bad weather. But before we get to telling you something of that, we'd like to give you some idea of what happens when the Irish don't all have that innate sense of navigation that people here in Killaloo take for granted. Here's a story of a poor lad. Oh, we better change his name to protect the guilty. Let's just call him Paudine O'Rafferty. It's a true story, honest. We found it in a newspaper. Have they ever lied to you before? <laughs> sure now, ladies and gentlemen, if you please. I'll relate the great mistake I made when I came here to Naples. Stop, I say, Paudine. Don't deceive the ladies and gentlemen, for bedad, I didn't come at all. They brought me in a ship, a great big ship with two big sticks standing out of it. Mass, they call them. Bad luck to it in the day I saw it. Now, if I'd been an ignorant fella and didn't know geography and the likes, I'd be safe enough at home now, so I would, in my own cellar on the coal quay in Dublin. But I must be making a man of myself, showing my learning, my knowledge of similitude and the like. You see... I went over to England on a bit of an agricultural speculation, haymaking and harvest raping. And the season being good, I realized a fortune, so I did. A matter of 30 shillings or so. So I says to myself, says I, now I've got an independent competence. I'll go back to Ireland, I'll buy it out, and I'll make myself emperor of it. So... I asked one of the boys which was my nearest way to Bristol to go by the sea. So, says one of them, now by the same token, he was a cousin of mine, one Terry O'Rafferty. Decent of boys you could wish to meet and as bandy with a shillelagh. Well, I've seen him clear a tent at Donnybrook Fair in less than two minutes, with never one to help him except his bit of stick. And you know, that's no easy job. Well, says Terry to me, says he, Go down to the quay, says he, and you'll find out all about it while a cat'd be licking her ear. Well, I went to a man that was standing by the door of a public house. It was the sign of, um, the sign, what the plague is this the sign was? You see, I like to be circumspicious in me geography. It was the sign uh, of the blind cow kicking the dead man's eyes out. <laughs> Or the dead man's cow kicking the blind, no, well, well, it was something that way, anyway, you know. So I says to the man, sir, says I, I want a ship. There you are, says he. Where, says I. There, says he. Well, thank you, says I. Which of them's for Ireland? 
Oh, you're an old countryman, says he. How did you find that out, says I. I know it, says he. Well, who told you, says I. No matter, says he. Come, come, says he. I will, says I. Well, we went in, and we had a half a pint of whiskey. Uh, but, Dad, you know, it had done your heart good to see the bait rise on the top of it. Maybe my heart didn't warm to him and his to me, uh, Merther. Aaron Gobras is he. Cade Mila Faltis is I. And there we were, like two sons of an Irish king in less than a minute. Then we got to discoursing about Dublin and Naples and other foreign parts that we were acquainted with. And he began talking about how like the Bay of Naples was to the Bay of Dublin. For you see, he was an old soldier, do you mind? And them old soldiers are always mighty cute chaps. He was a great big chap. It was often the wars among the French and the Spaniards and the Russians and other barbarians. So we got talking of similitude and geography and the likes and mixing Naples all water and Dublin and whiskey and me by my soul. Pretty punch we made of it. I was in the middle of me glory when in walks the captain of the ship. And he went here to go aboard, says he. Here I am, says I. And by the same token, me head was quite soft with the whiskey. And water in Dublin, and Dublin and Naples, Naples and Dublin, uh, bad says to me. But I said to one place instead of the other when they asked me where I was going. Do you mind? <laughs> well, they brought me aboard the ship as drunk as a lord and threw me down in the cellar, the hold, they call it. And the devil's own hold it was, with sacks and pigs and praties, all other passengers, and there they left me in lavender, like Paddy Ward's pig. Well, I fell asleep the first week. <laughs> and when I woke up, didn't I heave a head in me stomatics, enough to make me backbone and me ribs strike fire? Ah, says I to myself, says I, are they ever going to take me home? Just then, I heard a voice sing out. There's the bay. Well, that was enough for me. I scrambled upstairs till I got on the roof, the deck, they call it, as fast as my legs could carry me. Land ho, says one of the chaps. Where, says I. There, says he. For the love of glory, show me where, says I. There over the cat's head, says he. I looked around, but there never was a cat's head or dog's tail either I could see. The blaggard stared at me as if I was a banshee or a fairy. I gave another look, and there was the bay, sure enough, afore me. Ah, good luck to you, said I, but you warm the cockles of me heart. But what's come over the hill of house, says I? It used to be a civil, paceable sort of a mountain, but now it's spluttering and smoking away like a great big lime kiln. Sure, the boys must have lit a big bonfire on top of it to welcome me home. With that... A vagabond that was listening to me cries out in a hoarse laugh. Hill of Houth, says he. You're a Grecian, that's not the Hill of Houth. Not the Hill of Houth, says I. No, says he, that's Mount Vesuvius. Easy, easy, says I. Isn't Mount Vesulfurus in Italy? <laughs> yes, says he. And isn't Italy near France, says I. Of course, says he. And isn't France near Gibraltar, says I. Well, maybe so, says he, but we're in Italy anyhow. This is the Bay of Naples, and that is Mount Vesuvius. Are you sure, says I? 
I am, says he. And by my soul, it's true. The ship made a big blunder in taking me to Naples when I wanted to go to Dublin. Do you mind? Now, when fellows from Killaloo end up in Italy, it's quite a different story from that of Paddino Rafferty. In fact, we've sent more than a few of our boys over to Italy, France, and other European destinations, but not always on a holiday. We'll let our favorite Killaloo poet, Martin Garvey, explain. Off to War by Martin Garvey. To mention them who mustered in, some went to the raging sea, others to the air to do their share for this page of history. On to each went many a score to proudly serve their nation. From the battlefield it was revealed. They were from Killaloo Station. <laughs> It's interesting sometimes to hear from those Killaloo lads when they are a long way from home and what that homing device, that innate sense of navigation we all have around here, what it seems to tell us about who we are and what's really important to us in life. Let's listen to one such fellow, Private Eldon Getz, an old family name from old Killaloo, who once wrote home from Italy during the Second World War. He only wanted to thank somebody from Barry's Bay an old First World War veteran who worked as a janitor at the Barry's Bay Post Office and who sent Eldon some cigarettes to get him through. 22nd March, 1944, 71st Light Armored Division, Royal Artillery Corps, Canadian Army Overseas. T.E. Skuse, Barry's Bay, Ontario, Canada. Dear Sir, I thank you once again for the cigarettes I received a short time ago. Some time before I received another 300. I believe I forgot to thank you, so I'll do so now. How I happened to be one of the lucky ones to receive the cigarettes, I could never figure out. In the line of sport in hockey and baseball, I know I am well known in your district. Outside of sports... I figured I lived too far away to come under your district regime. Thank the Veterans Association for me and for thinking of me. You will notice my address has changed somewhat since I came to Italy. We have sure experienced a new type of life since we came here. Our boys, on the whole, have done some wonderful jobs. Tonight, I hope to hear a hockey game broadcast from Canada. It makes us feel as if we are close to home again. I shall never forget the night I played for the Barry's Bay Lumberjacks in the spring of 1941 at Ottawa for the Dominion Intermediate Hockey Championships. After the war is over, I expect the Bay will turn out a good hockey and baseball team. I wish the association good luck all through the year. Yours sincerely. Private Eldon Getz. Eldon survived the Second World War, and like him, Killaloo seemed to find a new purpose after 1945. 
Indeed, if the late 19th century was all about kick-starting the railroad boom, certainly by the mid-20th century, Killaloo discovered a completely different kind of notoriety. 14 October 1952, The Ottawa Evening Citizen by Fred Inglis. Killaloo. For Pete's sake, tell the public about Killaloo, one citizen here pleaded. Wherever we go, the people find out we're from Killaloo. They ask, where the devil is Killaloo? We hear it mentioned on the radio every day when they give the weather forecast. But where is the place? Where's Killaloo? That's the question asked by hundreds who hear the place mentioned daily on the radio as they read out the weather reports. Killaloo leads a double life. As a quiet village of 800 people, 98 miles northwest of Ottawa, and as a Department of Transport weather station and emergency landing strip midway between Uplands and North Bay. Said another resident, Some of our boys, when they're away from home, they say they're from Pembroke to keep from going into a long explanation about the place. (laughs) But the people of Killaloo are proud of their village. Killaloo is important to two groups of people, those who live here and make their living here, and a second group who never see Killaloo, but depend on it for the safety of their lives. Trans-Canada Airline, TCA pilots, and their passengers. Killaloo is a neat little village of 800 warm-hearted people, about 98 miles northwest of Ottawa and 35 miles southwest of Pembroke. The village was built astride a little river called Brennan's Creek that once powered a woolen mill here. It flows into beautiful Golden Lake, one mile east of the town. Killaloo is a typical upper Ottawa Valley village with two sawmills, a sash and door factory, and a cement block plant. It has the usual assortment of stores, schools, churches, one hotel, and a bank, and a movie theater. The CNR train from Ottawa to Barry's Bay runs through here daily. Killaloo is at the junction of Highway 62 from Pembroke and Number 60 that runs from Eganville to Barry's Bay. It's a good farming district. If it had not been for the fact that Killaloo is situated about midway between Ottawa and North Bay, the chances are it would have remained a small rural community, unsung and unpublicized by radio announcers. The fact that the TCA has such an excellent record is due largely because the DOT has established a chain of emergency landing strips, radio ranges, and weather reporting stations, just like the one at Killaloo. Killaloo is in the township of Hegarty in Renfrew County. In racial origin, its population is made up of nearly 50% Irish, 40% German, and 10% Polish descent. I've met cordial people in my travels, but the people of Killaloo are probably the friendliest in the Ottawa Valley. The village was first called Fort McDonnell, with emphasis on the Don, and there are actually two Killaloos. The original hamlet of Killaloo still stands, barely a mile west of here. It was given that name by early settlers who came from Killaloo in Ireland. When the Ottawa, Armprior, and Perry Sound Railway came through in 1894, the stop was called Killaloo Station, the town's proper name today. The name of the station is Killaloo, and mail for persons living at both old and new settlements come addressed simply to Killaloo. The postmaster at Killaloo Station knows which mail to send on to old Killaloo. (laughs) 
The township runs generally north and south, about a mile long and a half a mile wide. Queen Street angles to the left and right as it zigzags through the length of the village. Names of other streets commemorate early settlers. Cameron, Roach, Ryan, Boland, Call, Lisk, John, <coughs> William, Angus, James, and Annie Streets. Lake Street, second most important, but only a block long, points towards Golden Lake. Highway 60 and 62 merge just outside the northwest end of Killaloo and run westward together through the village and onto Barry's Bay. Fifteen miles west, they part company. Like Chesterville, Killaloo has a mill street that runs beside the mill pond where the mills used to stand. Like most other small communities, the station, the CNR in this case, is the heart of the town and a hub of activity around train time twice a day. The village also has a good daily bus service to Ottawa, Pembroke, Renfrew, and Toronto. Many who listen to the nightly weather forecast on the radio may be puzzled about Killaloo, but the people for miles around here, also the tourists from Ottawa and from the United States, know and love the place. 15th October, 1952, The Ottawa Evening Citizen by Fred Inglis. Killaloo. Although the village of Killaloo today is peopled largely by persons of Irish, Polish, and German descent, it was a Scotsman named William MacDonald who built the first house here in 1858 and named the settlement Fort MacDonald. William MacDonald was a lumberman who came here by way of Glengarry County with his wife and son Angus and built a sawmill. The MacDonald home is just across the tracks from the station on Angus Street, named after the pioneer's oldest son. The best authority on the early history of Killaloo today is Miss Katie Bell MacDonald, a granddaughter of William MacDonald. Born in 1887, Katie Bell, as everyone calls her, has a good memory, a keen sense of humor, and a flair for colorful description. My father, Angus MacDonald, was three months old when he came here from Glengarry, Miss MacDonald told me. He came with his parents by stage and wagon and by canoe up the lake the last part of the journey. My uncle Colin was the first male child born in Fort MacDonald. For years, the post office was at Old Killaloo. Before the grist mill was built there, people used to walk to Eganville with a bag of grain from grist. The grist mill is still at Old Killaloo, and so is the post office. Joseph Bonfield, father of Dr. J. Patrick Bonfield of Ottawa, was one of the first settlers in Old Killaloo. Other early pioneers were John Knight, Thomas J. Tussell, and Charles Boland, the last two from Ottawa. My grandfather was born in Glasgow and was the first man to set foot here. The place was named Fort MacDonald in his honour. He had the first sawmill in these parts, just below the Iron Bridge. There was a creamery here once, but it closed down about 35 or 40 years ago. Miss MacDonald showed me an old photograph of Killaloo that once won a bet for her not long ago. She argued that once there were three railway tracks in Killaloo, her opponent insisted that there were never more than two. Out came the old picture taken about 1895 from the roof of the Beresford Hotel, still in business and going strong. It showed the station and across from it a warehouse, a liquor store, the original McDonald home, a frame house that was burned to the ground, and three tracks, the main line and two sidings. Another early photo shows a train in the station, an OA and PS engine pulling Grand Trunk freight cars. One of the pioneers of the Killaloo was Tim Harrington, whose four sons and three nephews have entered the priesthood. 
A son, Alphonse, was recently named Bishop of Kamloops, B.C. His clergymen brothers are Father D.J. Harrington, Chapeau, Quebec, Father Jerry Harrington, Sheenborough, Quebec, and Father Pat Harrington of Camrose, Alberta. The nephews are Father John Harrington of Pembroke, Father D.J. Harrington Renfrew, and Father Alfie at Deep River. The first church established in Killaloo was the Evangelical Church, still used regularly. Others are the Presbyterian Church and Roman Catholic Church, established in 1892, and the Anglican Church. There is a good public school built in 1929 and a separate school that teaches classes up to grade 13, including some students from as far away as Barry's Bay. On the shores of Round Lake, 10 miles to the north, where a man caught a 43-pound gray trout four years ago, is Windermere Lodge, a popular summer camp and hunting lodge operated by Saskatchewan-born Clayton Slim Lang. The slogan over his camp gate reads, Where good friends meet. Slim told me that 500 deer were shot in one season, and this was vouched for by marksman Tom Dodge, who has shot his share of deer. The Killaloo Lions Club is the meeting place for business and professional men here who have the welfare of the town's youth and the needy as their aims and objectives. Vern Bros is the only harness maker for many miles around. He makes heavy harnesses for lumber firms as far distant as Tomogamy, north of North Bay. Of his many years at his vanishing trade, he quips, If I had my choice, I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> 16th October 1952, The Ottawa Evening Citizen by Fred Inglis. Killaloo. There are really three places known as Killaloo. One, the tiny original hamlet a mile west of here, known to those familiar with the district. Two, Killaloo that was once Fort McDonnell and is home and shopping centre for the villagers and residents of the district. And three, Killaloo Intermediate Airdrome a mile east of here, known only to those who fly the skies and to the Department of Transport Air Service people. This latter Killaloo is what CBC radio listeners hear about when the announcer says, Hi, on Wednesday at Killaloo, North Bay and Sudbury, 70. We've told you a little about the first two. Now for something on the latter Killaloo. At the Killaloo Airdrome on Highway 60, just east of the village, you see a small cluster of squat, square buildings, a beacon tower, and an illuminated windsock. You see red boundary lights that mark the outer margins of the grassy landing strip, and along the fence are heavy rollers used to pack the snow on the field in the wintertime. Drive 1.7 miles north along the same highway, and you see tall steel masts with wires strung between them. If your car radio is turned on, you'll get strange Morse code signals on your loudspeaker as you drive past what is designated as the Killaloo radio range. At the airdrome, I entered what appeared to be the business office. Inside, there was so much noise that the radio operator couldn't hear me enter the room. The teletype machine clacked away loudly, and conversation was coming over the amplifier on a telephone line. Voices from Uplands, North Bay, and other DOT offices. At once, the courteous officer in charge, Pat McMenemy, gave me a brief outline of what goes on at the Killaloo that most people hear about. Little boys should be seen and not heard, said the mother of Pat McMenemy. Now he's heard but not seen, as he broadcasts weather information to TCA and RCAF pilots and other weather stations. 
Killaloo also sends out the frequency beam that pilots ride from between Ottawa and North Bay. The grassy emergency airfield at Killaloo is 500 feet wide and 3,300 feet long on the north-south landing strip. Two other directional strips are 3,060 and 2,600 feet, respectively. The field is also used by many planes belonging to campers in the district, and it cuts the travel time between favorite fishing and holiday paradises and the outside world. There would normally be five radio operators working shifts at Killaloo Intermediate Airdrome, but due to the shortage of radio men, there are only four at present. The station operates 24 hours a day, seven days a week, the year round. And from what I saw, there is no chance of anyone on duty falling asleep at any hour of the day or night. There is so much to be done. 13 miles south of Killaloo is the new RCAF radar unit at Foymount, a site chosen because it's the highest location around here. Higher even than the beautiful lookout at Shrine Hill in Wilno, five miles from here. And there is still another Killaloo in the making. 13 miles north of Killaloo Village and just west of Round Lake, the H.J. McFarland Construction Company is racing against time to complete a new airfield known as the Killaloo Airport Extension. By freeze-up, there will be a hard-surfaced runway 200 feet wide and 6,600 feet long with connecting taxi strips, parking area, and adjoining roads. Will the present station be closed and moved to the new station? No one seems to know, not even the DOT people. Killaloo, as we all know, no longer has a railroad passing through, nor does it have a radio station or emergency landing strip. But we do have the immortal words of Killaloo's answer to Robert's service, our very own Martin Garvey. And though it took our producer an early morning romp through the Haggerty Hills to find them tacked up on the wall of Gerald Coslow's old hunting camp, we thought we couldn't let you go tonight without hearing about some of the best Killaloo shenanigans that happened here years ago. And if the truth must be known, and it must, it's about a night that has often been repeated by more than a few of our more recent Killaloo boys, if not girls. That Night Near Killaloo by Martin Garvey. You will realize how those four buys on that night were feeling well, for they did consume in the beverage room of the Beresford Hotel. Yes, they did consume in the beverage room until time to close the bar, when O'Grady James said, I will arrange that you join me in my car. Now don't you fear, I've lots of beer. Perhaps we'll sing a song. Besides of you, there's Garvey, too. I hope that you come along. I know he'll go, said Gerald Coslow. Yes, that I can reveal. So without delay, we were on our way with O'Grady at the wheel. Soon, we found a spot we really thought, for the night, seemed very good. While the car we parked, a dog then barked. Could rouse that neighborhood. Then it seemed so strange when O'Grady James began the Villa Shore. Old dog barked on till he heard that song, for then he barked no more. Now the night was calm for our program, as songs rolled round and round. There were stories told of the days of old, then a poem of Perry Sound. 
how Waylon Pete so well did treat, his heart was of good cheer. After every song, how he carried on in passing round the beer. Then on that night, we saw a light. We thought we had the course, for the light we saw could be the law, the coming of the force. Still, Waylon Pete said, I will go out and meet, in case it is a raid. I'll claim the beer that you have here, are the words Peter Wayland said. Pete soon returned, said, it's fire that burns, but only in the garbage heap. So we'll carry on with our joyful song, while himself, he passed the treat. Yes, we carried on with our joyful song, first was the gull ashore, then voices clear, on that night you could hear, in 20 songs or more. It's 3 a.m., I think, said Jim. For a while we should leave the car. Perhaps we might just view the night, but we won't go very far. I sure agree with their words of Garvey, for so well we realize. Three hours here we've been drinking beer, while we have got no exercise. Still well and Pete, he kept his seat. The same did Gerald Coswell. For those two boys seemed to realize there was no place there to go. The moon is dim tonight, said Jim. There's not the sign of breeze, but a silver screen and how it seemed to beam through the branches of the trees. While in the north I can report about my most strangest nights, when a hissing sound I surely found came from those northern lights. Yes, a hissing sound I surely found from those colors on display, make it just as bright to move by night as it was to go by day. For a while we gazed on those misty rays until a fog began to rise. This night is strange, said O'Grady James, as we joined the other buys. Then Whale and Pete passed the final treat, just before we moved along, while Gerald Coslow, in a voice so mellow, how he sang the closing song. Now the night was calm for our program, so well we carried through. We were not drunk down by the dump that night in near Killaloo. No, we were not drunk down by the dump, though all were feeling well, being guests of James O'Grady, who hails from Brudenell. <laughs> Now that's what we call real Killaloo shenanigans. I'd like to thank you for coming out tonight to learn a little about Killaloo history and what has gone on here during the past 170 years or so. And thank you to the Opiongo Readers Theatre, and especially Leslie Betts, Jeff Bowman, Jane Corbett, Linda Schulist, Lynn Stewart, and Mark Wormke. And last but not least, our producer, Barry Conway. I'm Nicole Zumak. Good night and good luck. <laughs>